Hello and welcome to the MadeCast, the official podcast of the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment. A series of lectures on video game history as part of the Maid's ongoing effort to preserve this history through teaching and displaying playable exhibits of rare games and consoles. While life in time of COVID has forced us to close our doors, the support of people like you has allowed us to continue to bring history to you for lectures like one you will hear in a few minutes. So, um, it's Shin speaking now, so let's introduce ourselves. How's it going? I'm Alex. You can call me Red, because the other Alex is more important. I'm Anthony. And I'm Miles. This week we'll discuss video game news, and then we'll hear from Alex Handy and special guest Frank Cifaldi, who's a video game preservationist, historian, developer, and founder of the Video Game History Foundation. They'll be talking about video games from the 1970s, as well as the Magnavox Odyssey, the first console. Afterwards, we'll close out with the games we're currently playing and give thanks to our Patreon supporters. Now, let's hear some news. World of Warcraft is getting a new expansion. Can you believe it? Another one. I think that makes eight. Still going strong. Uh, this new expansion uh, called Shadowlands is coming out on November 23rd. Okay. November 23rd. That is my brother's birthday, actually. He never played war. Uh, wow. He never played war. Uh, children's card game. They've turned it into a digital card game now, but no. <laughs> well, happy early birthday to him. Yeah. Pre-launch begins November 10th, so that'll give you plenty of time to level up all those alts you've been sort of keeping in the background. So, like, as a, non-na- as a non-native WoW player, uh, what does it mean by, like, pre-launch? Is that essentially just, like, a beta that we would see? Pretty much, yeah. It's sort of like a warm-up to the expansion. Kind of give players time to get back into the game, um, prepare for all the new content, maybe explore some of the other old expansions that you didn't get to go through okay alrighty because I was with big games like that I've always been like I've always been like interested in them but then I'm just like this is this is the only game I can play if I pick it up and I don't I like other games (laughs) right yeah Um, the leveling process in WoW has actually been reduced so uh, you won't have to spend hours on hours of grinding to level up your characters they've reduced that time because they've compensated for the fact that you know there's all these games out so oh so they're taking a taking a book from a chin's game final fantasy 14 huh making it more accessible (laughs) yeah another thing that i thought would be interesting to bring up that happened in our very own oakland over the weekend it was halloween on saturday and for the friday saturday sunday uh Nashville Hot Chicken Joint, world-famous Hot Boys here in Oakland, California, got uh, their own costume set up, and they, cha- they, tur- they turned the entire restaurant into Cluck and Bell from GTA. Full-on paint job, uh, like a mask over their main sign that said Cluck and Bell, people in uniform, uh, handing out cans of Sprunk or bottles of Sprunk, it's their knockoff sprite cans, like legit labels and everything. It's they did a really killer job with the level of detail. They even had a uh, like a band board featuring Trevor Phillips from GTA Five, basically saying it's like not welcome in store. If you see him, make him leave. And it lists like all his depravity and everything else that he's done. It's <laughs> he. It's a. It's one 
one heck of a one heck of a thing to completely do to a restaurant just for Halloween. And I thought it was pretty cool. They had an IGN article written about it, which is, I thought, that's one way to get the word out about your restaurant. <laughs> get an, ID, get yeah. an IGN article. <laughs> I saw some of the uh, I saw some of the photos you posted, and I thought those were really good. Mm-hmm. Like I'd never seen a a restaurant do that. Yeah, I was. At, apparently, uh, games are now reaching uh, the edible realm. I mean, the only thing we've seen from that recently is uh, I think we've seen like there's like binging with Babish on YouTube. We'll do like video game food on occasion. Oh yeah, but other than that, not a whole lot else. I thought that was just a really nice little tidbit here that the community is going with the games. No, yeah, that's a cool thing. This week's lecture from Alex Handy, director and founder of The Maid, will be a brief overview of video games during the 1970s. Uh, we have a special guest, the original video game archaeologist, Frank Sifaldi uh, himself, uh, founder and director of the Video Game History Foundation. And without further ado, we'll throw it on over to them. Here's Alex and Frank. Hi, this is Alex Handy here speaking today with Frank Cifaldi, founder and now co-director of the Video Game History Foundation. I see you have a co-director, Frank. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Uh, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have the original video game archaeologist himself on the show. And I, I, I hear you. The original, but <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm old. I always I always thought of you as the original. Uh, uh, but the other thing is you've got a new podcast going on, too, right? So, Oh, that's true. Yeah, um, Video Game History Hour. We just launched it, um, well, this week as of this recording. Um, and it's uh, it's something that we've wanted to do for quite a while, but we just never figured out the format um, because Kelsey, my co-director, and I are, um, are perfectionists when it comes to history. Like We don't want to talk about it unless we've vetted the heck out of it for a long time and sweated over it and made sure it's accurate. And, um, it took us forever to realize hey, other people already do that and they publish things. So it's a show where every week we just bring in a guest who has recently published some very good video game history and we talk to them about the story and, and, their, and their process. Uh, yeah, that's sort of the, the tactic I'm taking here is, you know, I can blather for a while, but it's I, there's plenty of people to bring on and talk to, like you. Sure. Uh, so I'd specifically brought you on today because I wanted to talk about the very early days, like the early 70s. Okay. Uh, I wasn't alive, ep- but I'll do my best. <laughs> well, neither was I. But the last episode, I talked about things like Bagatelle and sort of skill cranes and, and the older sort of uh, puppet stuff you see at the Musée Mechanique. So I left off with Ralph Baer and uh, actually how impressive it was that you could actually create what, how many games are in the Odyssey? Like 12? Some, some, however many games are on there yeah. with just dots of light, right? Well, sure. But I mean, have you played an Odyssey? Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying the games were stellar. <laughs> right, but there's not, what I'm saying is that there's not even game logic, and for the most part, the games are, are in your imagination you know, with yes. the Odyssey. Absolutely, but I mean, that's a yeah. tradition that kept on into the 80s with interactive fiction and games that played on Traveler, the, the role-playing game, but it, it, I, doing it for the first time, I feel, is an incredible accomplishment of creativity to come up with anything you could do with those lights on the screen. Yeah, and really if we're talking about the odyssey what it comes down to is that uh bear was a television mechanic you know like like his his degree was in television engineering i think he was the first degree in television engineering like he fundamentally understood 
how the TV worked. And so um, him creating this system was really just creating ways of interacting with the TV that were not just watching stuff. And if you look at, you know, he, he did other things as well. Like he invented a, um, the sort of gun that you pointed at the screen on, on a live broadcast to answer trivia questions, stuff like that. Um, I, there's a, there's a video that Outerlands did with him where he demonstrated, uh, he had this prototype where, um, if he threw a ball at the screen, the screen would know where the ball hit, and he prototyped it with Duck Hunt. So it's like a version <laughs> of Duck Hunt where you could throw balls at the ducks. Um, so he was very TV-minded, and, and that's sort of where the Odyssey came from, I think, was just his fundamental understanding of how the tubes and the, and the cathode ray gun and all that work together. I don't think that, you know, not to sound too hooky with the, these kids today thing, but I don't I don't think that uh, folks today understand quite what the world of televisions was like back then. Like you could go to the supermarket and give vacuum tubes to fix your television. Right. Like the, there oh, was this. I didn't know that. That's cool. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they would you would go and swap out tubes. Right. People would yeah. fix their TVs at home. And it was there was a whole world of like tinkering with your TV. Kind so of like thing. vacuum tubes were basically like batteries. Like they would run out. You'd go get a new one at the store yeah one would blow because the, the yeah. manufacturing of them was so unreliable sure wow that's cool uh and there were vacuum tube test kits i've seen them i mean the the the, the fact that ralph Bayer was able to get a degree in like television engineering basically is it's sort of a lost art or something that i don't think people even <laughs> understand you could do right yeah i mean it was brand new with i think he's literally the first person with that degree if i'm remembering his I haven't read his biography in like 10 years, but if I'm remembering right, he was the first person with that degree. Uh, um, I, I wouldn't doubt it. And the last one with that degree was probably within his lifetime. So. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and then after that, it turned into a mail-away college correspondent school because <laughs> television started to become mass-produced, you know, not sort of works of feverish engineering assembled by singular hands in a small, right. you know, because they were really complex. Adam, Adam, yeah, and, and, yeah, and game development... Uh, evolved to not be after hours at a military contractor's office yeah <laughs> or out of nasa offices i mean literally at the same time that this was going on with ralph bear you know and the magnet vox odyssey is launching you've got maze war being developed at nasa ames right uh i'll have to take your word on it i don't, I don't remember that one I mean, but it's interesting to parallel where these two different development periods were. Like, Space Wars certainly predates the Odyssey, right? right? Like, yeah, the computer yeah. stuff was way ahead. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you, you have you have sort of these proto-games happening uh, on the few college campuses that had the computers that could do that, right? The PDP-11. So, um, yeah, uh, Space War certainly predates it, and it's it's... When we're talking about, like, what was the first video game, it's such a messy question because it, there wasn't this eureka moment that one person had. It's just that uh, it was different people operating in parallel. Um, that It's not that they had the same idea. It's that they were working with different stuff that could make a video game. You know, so, like, the PDP-11, for example, was completely different than working with a television. And so you, you sort of have these parallel eurekas that that sort of come together eventually in, in the later 70s 
Exactly. But, uh, you know, the Odyssey is sort of the one that brought it home for the first time, I suppose. You, yeah. could, you know, and, and, and thinking, I, I loved the article that you guys did that, that uh, was, was so in-depth about how do you market this thing that really nobody has ever heard of, nobody's ever yeah. seen before, What what is this thing? The kids today take it for granted that the console wars have sort of been going on forever, the kind of way you and I took for granted that the Cold War had been going on forever when we were yeah. growing up, right? Like, uh, But at the, at the point where the Odyssey came out, there was nothing you plugged into your television for fun. There weren't even really VCRs or anything, right? Like uh, That I don't know. I think there might have been early uh, home video. Um, but, uh, oh, I suspect the video cameras probably plugged in as well i mean well, we're talking about 72 right yeah 72 i'm not sure when vcrs debuted vcrs are like mid to late 70s okay, and, okay i mean that, okay. if you were super rich i think you could have maybe found your way to some of this equipment in 72 yeah like um but yeah like to your point we 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 have uh, an author who who works with us uh, kate willard who uh is very slowly digesting the history of uh video game marketing uh, in the U.S. and um, when it came to the Odyssey, it's a really interesting uh, look, especially like you said, because you know how do you market a video game to people who don't know what that is yet, or even have a concept of putting something into their television? Um, did you uh, did you happen to see the clip of whose line is it anyway? No, the sales. So, do you know that game show? Who's yes, absolutely, absolutely. Ryan so, Styles and. The premise, of course, is that um, someone comes up who has kind of a weird job and the panelists ask yes or no questions until they try to figure out what his job is. And they had someone who uh, was marketing. Uh, well, actually, they had, they had someone at Magnavox who, who was marketing the Odyssey. And what they did was they wheeled in a television. Oh, I, I think you mean, uh, what's my line? What's my line? Sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Not whose line is it anyway. Sorry. What's, <laughs> what's my, my line? line? The vintage what TV a, show. Yeah, thing. no, absolutely. Yes. The game line? show. The game show. Yes, the game show. So they wheeled in a television and the panelists only saw the back of the TV and uh, the host of the show and the person whose job you were trying to guess were playing tennis on the Odyssey. And if you've never seen the Odyssey or tennis, it's Pong. Like Pong just straight up ripped off tennis on the Odyssey. Um, and so the panelists can't see what they're doing. They just see that they're like staring intently at the screen and like giggling and going, oh, you got me, you know, and, and it's it's an amazing artifact, this video clip existing, uh, because that is people being filmed for the first time, wrapping their heads around the very idea that you could make something on a television move. And <laughs> and like that's that, that's such an amazing thing to have survived. Uh Thank Absolutely. you, Game Show Network, for coming around and and <laughs> and, well, and having a reason to uh, archive old game show tapes and, and show them again, so that we could have this clip. Right. That's that's the thing I keep pounding and trying to pound into people's heads. They're like, "Why would you want to save all this stuff?" It's like we don't get to decide what's important, right? Like nobody yeah. saved that clip at the Game Show Network, thinking that Frank's going to need this to document, or you know, the, the, the video, <laughs> right. game, video game history foundation. It's video game this. history. We should save this episode now. Right. Right. Like well, I can't wait till you uh, bring up an episode of Supermarket Sweep in one of these. <laughs> oh, I want. I don't. I wonder. <laughs> yeah, I wonder. Yeah. No. Yeah, now, well, now I'm now I'm trying to figure out how to because I've. I, I'm fairly familiar with Supermarket Sweep. <laughs> so, is there is it possible that there's video game history in Supermarket Sweep? 
I, don't I would wager there's at least one game developer who's shown up on that show. Oh, I, okay. I, I think that's... I'll take that bet. I think that's extremely unlikely, but it's not a bad theory. <laughs> you never know. Or somebody's mother, at least. <laughs> sure, that's, sure, sure, sure. Uh, that brought me... I, I, mean, I wanted to spend, you know, all that... Uh, a little bit of time talking about the Magnavox, sort of placing it contextually. I'm a yeah. you know big fan of those humongous history deep dive podcasts, uh, but this is only yeah. a half hour, so context being very important. But I wanted to also spend time talking about your organization because I think what you guys do is super important and I don't think people quite understand it as well as maybe they should in the games industry. Uh, sure. Um, so you're asking me to pitch it? <laughs> well, well first off, why don't we talk about the source project? Let's start with that. Okay. Um, so one of the things that we've got going on at the Video Game History Foundation is what we call the Video Game Source Project. And essentially this is um, an awareness campaign and a call to arms around the importance of preserving the raw materials that went into making a game. Um, at the foundation, we are not really concerned with retail video games, right? Like when we, we've got museums for that, we've got the Maid, we've got uh, the Strong, we've got MVM, we've got plays, we've got video game collectors for God's sake, right? Like we have people who are collecting and preserving and storing retail video games but what we don't tend to have are the raw things that went into making them which is what historians actually need to tell history right like we don't uh you know context well yeah we need context and it's like when you're writing the i don't know if you're writing a film history book on citizen kane you don't just watch the movie and like extrapolate from the movie you you research raw material you you access the original script you find letters of correspondence you might maybe even find rough cuts of the film you know old uh old press material things like that to to kind of tell that story um whereas with video games like we don't tend to have access to that kind of stuff so we don't write uh really in-depth history uh unless we go out and find it so um what we're trying to do with the source project is start collecting that raw material around video games, typically the source code, sometimes the source art, source music, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, archive it, make it available to people and, and, uh, just blast it out there that, Hey, this stuff's important. Um, in the hopes that, uh, people contact us and go, Hey, I, I, uh, I took this thing home that I shouldn't have. Do you want it? Which has happened already, which is great. I mean, that's that's sort of the way most of the source code in this industry has been preserved, is somebody took yeah. it home, right? I, yeah, I, absolutely. I, it's, I've said this many, many times, and I probably said this on the first episode of the podcast, but, like, you know, you can go see Rembrandt's house and all the things that he used and how he worked, but you can't go and see how a Atari 2600 developer worked. You know, you <laughs> yeah, can't, like... Yeah, that's true. And, and, and that's ridiculous, because that was only 40 years ago, right? Like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. Sure, I agree with that. Uh, I don't know that we need to replicate Gary Kitchen's desk or whatever to understand <laughs> how games were made, but no, um, but but, but y- investigating his his documentation and the source code will will basically do that for you, right? Like it'll help you understand uh, the problems that needed to be solved, how the systems work together, um, yeah, stuff like that. Um, so I don't know if you happen to see the Monkey Island event that we did as part of this uh, project. Yes, I saw that you were doing that. I have to. I have not viewed the. Oh yeah, yeah that's okay. Assets. But like, this is just a good example of part of the source project is we're trying to show the world what happens if historians can get at this stuff. And so, 
we did a live stream with Ron Gilbert, who was the the uh, project lead and the creator of uh, The Secret of Monkey Island and also Monkey Island 2, um, which is, a, a, you know, if you're listening, you don't know that game. It was a pretty seminal game uh, in, in the 90s that sort of defined uh, what point-and-click adventures became. It's not the first point-and-click adventure, but it's the one that sort of really set the stage, and, and I would say the modern ones are still derivative of Monkey Island. Um, and so what we did was we took that source code and we spent a really long time figuring out how the systems worked. Uh, I'm semi-fluent in its scripting language. <laughs> if, you, uh, if you need a scum <laughs> game, let me know. Um, and we were able to come up with some interesting development stories just by looking at the code. We were able to uh, find content that's not in the final game that got cut out, and we were able to restore it and show how it would have functioned and things like that. And we did a live stream with Ron um, to talk for two hours about how the game was made and to to actually show it, um, including a section where I I live-coded a new scene in the game. And it (laughs) took, like, five minutes. Um, And what that did was show people what to me was the core of monkey island's development which is that uh its authors could really quickly if they just thought of a dumb joke type it in in code and build the game and see what see what it looked like and and that to me is what made that game so special and so to be able to show that through its tools like that's a new thing no one's ever seen that before and, and plus, I should point out that that's something that software development companies pay billions of dollars for. Facebook <laughs> spent a billion dollars so that when they sat at their desk, they made a change to, the, to Facebook code. You could see it instantly because that makes yeah. developers go really fast. And that makes the software better, right? Like, this yeah. is a fundamental principle of software development, that feedback loop. And and then adding on to that, the fact that, yes, this is source code. Yes, this is complicated stuff. But you've tied it back to people. You've tied it back to Ron. You've tied it back to the team, the people who actually made that game. And you're able to surface the stories of the human beings behind all this stuff, which so rarely gets done. Yeah, and that, that's important to us. Um, we, I kind of, I kind of feel like when people study game development history, they really they don't have many tools, and so what we tend to gravitate toward are um, things like data mining the retail game to see what might be in there that that's not called in the in, in the game or. Uh, you know, obsessing over old screenshots and magazines from before it was done to sort of understand, you know, old decisions and things like that. And that stuff's really cool, but it's like, it's it's so much more limiting in terms of what you're actually going to understand than the source, than actually going to the source. Um, and so, yeah, to your point, part of what I wanted to do with the stream and, and with the source project is demystify game development a little bit. Uh, help people kind of understand that it's, you know, like these ideas uh, didn't just come straight out of his head and onto the screen, right? Like, like this, these were people collaborating, working together uh, and evolving this idea into this final product. And that's just something that we don't often see with uh, older games in particular. Mm, that's why I always tell people that, you know, if, you can criticize a game maybe based on your own taste or whatever, but no matter what the game is, somebody spent a lot of time and poured their heart and soul into it. And if it's not good, there's a story as to why it's not good. It, nobody sets out to make a bad game, right? Like, yeah, I mean, I see the term lazy developer sometimes when it <laughs> come out the way that people want it to. And it's like, I've never met a lazy game developer. No. Like, 
met extremely hardworking people who uh, uh, work well beyond their 40 hours a week to try to make this thing as good as they can. Yeah, exactly. Obsessive perfectionists, a lot of them yeah. or, 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 you know, prolific mad people or, you know, but like never There's lazy. There's not lazy. Yeah, not lazy. I mean, certainly there are people who will, you know, go around in circles or things or develop games for 20 years. But that's, you know, that's fine. Like, look at Dwarf Fortress. Look how long that game has been in development. And I still say that is one of the best games ever made. And, you know, it it chokes CPU with uh, simple tile sets that are represented by ASCII. Anyway, (laughs) we have about a minute left to finish off here. So I wanted to uh, let you uh, talk about just generally what the foundation's up to aside from the uh the source project and also you know to generally call out anything in oakland since you're also in oakland like we are yeah that's true (laughs) um i mean i I just want to quickly just sort of say what it is we are which is that um we're a little bit hard to understand because we're not a museum like the maid is uh we are strictly an archive uh of material that would be of interest to historians uh we're not we're not a we're not someone that necessarily is here to um entertain or or enrich you know the general public we're here because we want better history books we want better documentaries we want people to understand uh, history in a better way to to publish their own works um so like you said we're based in oakland uh we focus mainly on uh behind the scenes materials like the source project and on uh building uh, the first dedicated video game history reference library in the country. We have, um, I don't even know how many thousands of magazines and books, but several thousand, mm-hmm. uh, full runs of most of the American stuff. Um, and then a lot of like press material and things like that, old, you know, preview builds of games, uh, stuff like that. And, uh, uh, yeah, gamehistory.org if you want to know more. Also, uh, you're the, I mean, you, your big thing, the one thing that like most people generally know you for is that you find lost games. You're like the Indiana Jones of finding games. I mean, for God's sakes, the, is it South Dakota or North Dakota? It's North Dakota, right? Where in North Dakota is Carmen San Diego? <laughs> yeah, we'll just leave it there and let people Google what that, I mean, of all the games you found, that's my favorite. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty good one. Uh, thanks for coming down, Frank. We appreciate you of being course. here. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Thank you, Alex and Frank, for that wonderful discussion on video games from the 1970s. If you would like to keep up with Frank, you can do so by following his Twitter at Frank Cifaldi. That's F-R-A-N-K-C-I-F-A-L-D-I. If you would like to know more about the Video Game History Foundation, you can do so at GameHistory.org. Be sure to also check out their new podcast, Video Game History Hour. Now, let's take it back to our host as we wrap up the Maidcast by talking about what video games we've been playing this week. So, if you're a Destiny 2 player, this will be a very big week for you because the latest expansion, Beyond Light, will be coming. Actually, by the time you hear this podcast, it's already came out. I'm probably playing it like crazy. But, yeah. But, uh... The Destiny 2 latest expansion, they actually do a lot of new changes in their game. So, uh, this week is the last week I can play about a new concept because they're about to watch some of the old raids and contents into it. So, my friends are grabbing me, ro- like robbing me and 
bombing me on mail to to say, hey, let's go to do some old raid, or we can never do it mm-hmm. anymore. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. it's been a quite a crazy week, I have to say. Um, yeah, I've uh, I've been playing a uh, Watch Dogs Legion Ooh. since the launch. Ooh. Actually, How I is it? A, I lost a couple hours of sleep each day. <laughs> so it's that good, huh? <laughs> I've been excited for this game since they announced it. Um, so I was really stoked. Uh, launch day. And it's it's mind-blowing just how they designed this whole world in which every NPC is a playable character with their own mm-hmm. special perks and abilities. Yeah, Whoa. I was watching people playing it like a few days ago or maybe yesterday it's very fun I, I, I found a streamer just because there's so many interaction you can do with, you do with the, the people walk around you and you can just like shame them or say something <laughs> for really really bad or just keep swearing on them or just dance with them and if they can't bear they would just come up and give you a punch or something like that I, I laugh so hard <laughs> on that it's it just so funny it's such a great job for Ubisoft and do that kinds of detail of interaction and and with every single people who walk by you. It's really really good job Ubisoft. Yeah, the only thing I've really been I've still been playing a little bit of The Witcher. Uh I I said how I thought it was on the last mission that I just stopped picking up. Turns out it wasn't. Turns out I had a bit more to go. But it's definitely a more, it's a more linear progression at this point, which is kind of weird. Mm-hmm. I heard you never finished Witcher. I heard the game is too big for you to finish. <laughs> I'm, I'm not finishing, quote unquote. I'm the main. The I'm getting to the point where credits will roll on the screen. I mean, oh. <laughs> Witcher or Witcher Two or Witcher The 3 Witcher Three. Or the Witcher, Witcher 3, Three. The only one that I've played. And it's also just like, oh, this is like the climactic one. And I missed all the stuff in the, like at the yeah. start and the come up to like really understand like. Yeah, it needs, it, it requires a bit of context. Yeah, th- there's a little bit of context and I kind of, I, I do, I know a little bit of the awareness, but this whole game is essentially just the climax. That's the mm-hmm. entire feeling that I get. And yeah. then there's certain enemies like, I also think, cause I went around to try and do like all the side missions first, but. I, I think I got to too high of a level now because like every time I fight somebody I'm like six levels higher like in the main missions and it's just like oh this this is not much of a challenge anymore uh, mm-hmm. but I'm hoping that I get to the expanse that I can get to the expansions like after I beat this main story but Hearts of Stone is Hearts of Stone is really good okay um I'm still working through Hearts of Stone and I haven't even touched uh, blood and wine yet but it's basically an entirely new oh man zone like the size of the previous zone it's 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 basically an entirely separate game it's that big oh dang that's oh man yeah <laughs> i oh oh cd project red yeah it is probably one of the most in-depth detailed well-polished games i've played in a long time mm-hmm and we could talk about it for hours, but we are running out of time. <laughs> Again? In fact, oh. we have already done so. All righty. 
thank you for listening to the Museum of Art and Digital Entertainment's official podcast. Next week, we'll be talking about video games from the 80s, probably the most interesting decade in gaming history. You will not want to miss this one. If you've got any thoughts, questions, corrections, or general museum ideas, shoot us an email at info at We'd like to send out a big thank you to everyone who donated recently and our Patreon supporters who keep the made afloat. Patreon donors will be getting this podcast one week before it goes public on the major streaming services and will continue with future episodes every week. Also, huge thank you to Aaron Sheroff for composing the theme song for the Maid cast. Thank you, Aaron. And one last thank you to Frank Cifaldi for joining us on this week's Maidcast. Thank you, Frank. Till then, I'm Red. I'm Miles. I'm Chin. And I'm Anthony. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. Next time. See ya. Have a good one.